turn in the Word of God this evening, beloved, to Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. To be saved from ourselves. It was the evangelist W.P. Nicholson who quickly learned when he devoted his life to the Lord that he might be saved from public opinion. That was his prayer, that the Lord would save him from public opinion, save him from being influenced wrongly by the opinions of others. And when he was, if I can remember the story as it goes, when he was this is long before he was a preacher and he had been saved and he was in Bangor in Northern Ireland and the Salvation Army were playing and there was some event going on, something where everyone was there and the Salvation Army were a witness on the street uh, playing the instruments and so on. And uh, he was standing watching them and he thought he would stand with them and went and stood with the Salvation Army to support them as fellow believers. And then the uh, bandmaster, whoever he was, of the Salvation Army, got down on his knees and began to pray. And they all got down, and uh, he was <laughs> sort of shook his head, you know, like this, this struggle with, uh, within his own hometown. Could he get down in the dirt and pray with these believers? And he did. And he found it to be a very liberating experience, because uh, the next Lord's Day, which I think was the following day, I think it was a Saturday, and then he was at church, and he went to this well-to-do Presbyterian church, and he was singing far more loudly than he'd ever sung before, and bellowing out the hymns, and some uh, lady in front of him turned and glared at him, and uh, he stuck his tongue out at her. <laughs> that, was, that was his response, and there begins the, the legend of W.P. Nicholson. And if you've never read anything about him, you should. It is inspiring, encouraging, and humorous at the same time. And you'll read stories and you'll wonder what a different day that was when it comes to uh, offending people <laughs> and what he was willing to say. Of course, he was saying things that others wouldn't say, but I don't think he would survive very long today if he said the things that he said. There was... Uh, one occasion the meeting was packed out, as it often was, in his campaigns. And there was this lady that came in in a yellow dress. And she was looking for a place to sit. And uh, there was two ladies down at the, right, at the front. And, and so he thought there was room if they would just shuffle up a little bit. And so he said, you two hens shuffle up and let this canary sit down. <laughs> that, was, that was what he said, so... He had a wit, for sure. <laughs> oh, sometimes you wish you could go back to a different day. But anyway, Luke chapter 6 is where we are tonight, beloved. Luke chapter 6. And traversing through this gospel, I trust it's been encouraging, challenging, edifying. And I want to read again from verse 27. We've been dealing with this sermon preached by our Lord Jesus 
from verse 17 really begins and it deals with many things that are intended to be heart-searching for us. So we'll read from verse 27 through to verse 42 tonight. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, and do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek offer also the other, and him that taketh away thy cloak forbid not to take thy coat also. And give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. And he spake a parable unto them, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but every one that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Amen. May the Lord give light in his word this evening and help us all. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's still our hearts. Lord, we come again before Thee. We do thank Thee that the memory of the just is blessed, that we can remember men who lived so, so sold out for Christ and made an impact in their own day and generation. And that's the best that any of us can do. We can serve our generation Lord, I pray that Thou wilt give to each of us, Thy people, a desire to serve our generation. According to the gifts and talents that Thou dost give, according to the doors that Thou dost open, according to the providence of God in our lives, may we be actively giving ourselves to glorify Thee, to make Jesus known, to spread the gospel, and to influence the world. We confess our lack of power. In many ways, the verses that are before us, challenge us. Perhaps in them lies something of the reason for why we lack the power that we ought to have. And so we pray that Thou wilt forgive us our sins and help us tonight to hear the voice of our God 
to be challenged where we need to be challenged, to understand and to have the searchlight of thy word upon our hearts. Make it memorable for all the right reasons. May the Holy Ghost be upon preacher and listener. May souls be saved and Christ honored. For we pray in his precious name. Amen. We have spent three messages dealing with verses 27 through 36 in this sermon preached by our Lord Jesus. I mentioned to you that it's really the heart of Christian ethics. That's the overarching title that we give to those messages because while it is not everything in the Christian life, these verses are not all that we need to consider. It's not like we can just cut out the rest of the Bible and say, well, this is all we need in order to know how the Lord would have us to live. Yet, at the same time, they do contain, in essence, the heart of how we are to live. The spirit, the attitude, the the obedience that we are to give to our Lord. We have learned about the various responses that we should offer in our interpersonal relationships. Some of the things we have learned are as follows. We have learned that love, of course, is a verb. Action in this passage is emphasized not to the exclusion of affection. It's not like the Lord doesn't want us to have an affection for our enemies and others. But we should not feel, wait to feel that affection before we do what God has called us to do. We should obey the command. And the evidence of love is not solely in the absence of harm. It is in the presence of merciful activity. That we act mercifully as is summarized in verse 36. Be ye therefore merciful. This is the overarching call. Be merciful in all your dealings with men. Love is to do good to do good to men, to want the best for men, to pray on behalf of all men, even our greatest personal enemies. If you've ever had an enemy, you will know how difficult it is to want the best for them, do good to them, pray for them on behalf of them, and yet this is essential. This is what Christ says is the response of those who are part of his kingdom, followers of his name, those that say they have allegiance to him. He calls us to a higher standard. He calls us to a standard that is meant to be uncomfortable to the flesh. It's not meant to be easy. If it was easy, we would just be like everyone else, which is essentially what he says. If your love is like the love of the world, what thank have ye? There's no distinction. There's no difference. You're just like everyone else. This is not what you're called to. We made clear that love is not approval. For love does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. Love is not retaliation, but a willingness to do what is in your power to end conflict where you can. Love is not pacifism. Jesus is addressing interpersonal relationships of believers with others. When Jesus speaks of enemies, it is a matter of personal enemies, not conflicts between governments or other contexts. You can see verse 22, just to refresh your mind about that. It's dealing with those who are experiencing what they're experiencing for the Son of Man's sake. Or even verse 26, want you when all men shall speak well of you. This is an individual observation. This is an interaction between individuals and people are speaking well of you or not speaking well of you, whatever the case might be. But if they are doing so, they're doing the same as they did for 
or towards the false prophets. But it's this individual experience. It's not a call to have a a pacifist mindset in relation to the nation or other contexts as well. Love is a response of faith, not vengeance. It trusts providence and procedure to deal with personal wrongdoings. Consider what we're told in Romans 12, render not evil for evil, and then a few verses later when it comes into the matters relating to the civil government, they must punish the evildoer. And the connection there is obvious, that we are not to do what the civil government is appointed to do. Rather, we are to respond in faith, trusting procedure, trusting providence. God will deal with things as He sees fit through the machinery that He has. Love is motivated by eternal reward rather than earthly reciprocal reward. There's emphasis upon reward through this, and we'll come to it again tonight, God willing. Love is not careless of property, but it is not obsessive of it. It is not reckless in giving away wealth, but it is generous to all, even towards enemies in need. It's not just about giving to those that we would be inclined to help anyway, but even those that we would feed within ourselves, I don't want to help this person. Yet this is what love will do. Love would rather suffer personal loss than the loss of the soul. Of course, there are different things that happen even in the New Testament where you wonder, well, what's really going on here? Why is there this difference of of response? Love, of course, does not welcome personal abuse, nor does it retaliate against personal abuse, but love may avoid or submit to it according to the perception of the Father's will. What do I mean? Well, Christ did not permit himself to be thrown off a cliff. We know that. He walked right through the midst of them and avoided that. But he did submit himself to the cross. The disciples were taught that circumstances may require them to shake the dust off their feet rather than endure continual rejection. Paul ran from Damascus when his life was in danger, but walked into Jerusalem when his life was in danger. So you bring this together, you realize sometimes it actually brings you to to consider everything and try simply to perceive what is God's will here and now. What am I to do? It's not always clear. Love is supernatural. It calls us to have a likeness to God rather than a likeness to fallen men. It is sonship rather than selfishness. It is being ruled by Christ rather than circumstances and carnal desires. This is the call then, isn't it? You're to be like your father. Verse 35. Ye shall be the children of the highest. You do this, you manifest a real change in your heart. And just as he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil, this is what you are to do. Now we can read this if tonight we're not under any particular pressure of the application of the text. Well, we can sit and we can receive the message and be grateful for it. And thank you, Pastor, appreciate that. And, but if you're sitting tonight and this has an application to you right now where you are, and you're struggling with some interpersonal relationship, something that is going on in your life, something that has happened in the past, 
and you don't know how to respond to it, the only thing you know how to do is that which comes naturally to you, that you feel bitterness, envy, strife, anger, resentment. This passage needs to be taken to heart. And the Lord's not going to take His foot off the pedal as we proceed. He actually applies it even more. So we come this evening to the favorite verse of the heathen. Verse 37, judge not, judge not, and ye shall not be judged. How men love to brandish that text and throw it around, especially at the Christian, or to anyone really who would make some judgment upon them. And this evening, therefore, as we look at these verses, I want us to consider the heart of the Christian spirit. We saw the, the heart of the ethic This is love, love dominating in all that we say and do and how we respond. But now we get to the Christian spirit. I want us to think about this in the verses that are before us from verse 37 and following. And see, firstly, their generosity. Their generosity. What is the the spirit of those that follow Christ? What was the Lord Jesus calling those who follow Him to do? What was so different about what He was saying versus what other rabbis were saying Why did it cause such division as he ministered around and and preached the Word? Why was there this division continually among them as he preached the Word? Well, because what he was saying was not in line with what others say. So verse 37, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. You have here two negative commands. Judge not, condemn not, and then two positive commands, forgive and give. So, let's consider the opening words of verse 37. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. How are we to understand this? Perhaps nowadays, more than, at least in recent past, people are more sensitive to what you say about them than ever before. It's understandable, really, when we live in a time when we don't really want winners and losers anymore. In certain places, certain environments, they want to eliminate any sense of competition. We don't want winners, we don't want losers, we don't want anyone to feel that they're better, or anyone to feel like they are worse. And this pampering, this padding, this, this complete <laughs> false reality that is presented as children grow up causes them not to be able to deal with criticism, judgment, anything that may be negative towards them. Now, we all are feeling the influence of that. The, the political correctness seeps into all of us to lesser and greater degrees. So, what's the Lord saying here? Judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Does this mean Jesus prohibits justice via court of law? Of course, we know that's not the case. We've looked at Romans 13 last Lord's Day. Does it remove all personal judgment? Is it saying that you can't ever have any sense of judgment of another person? Verse 42 would seem to contradict that when it says, either how canst thou say to thy brother, brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, When thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine eye, thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt 
see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. The verse goes on to say it's fine if you see a fault in your brother. If you discern, or let's use the other word, if you judge that there is a fault in your brother, there is a place, there is a time, there is an appropriate way to deal with that matter. So Christ is not eliminating personal judgment. He's not saying that it's wrong to do this. Other passages, of course, are, are clearly mark out and elevate the importance of judgment, or we might use the word discernment. We are to determine fruit. We are to judge prophets and what they say and how, how they live. All of this is, is biblical. It is right. So what's the Lord saying? We're told also by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 verse 1, if a man be overtaken in a fault, leave him alone. No. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. There's a place for restoration, for help, for aid. Discerning there's a problem, discerning there's an issue, discerning there's a sin, a shortcoming, whatever word you want to use, there's something there, and we are called upon. We are given the responsibility to take action. And yet Jesus says here, judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. In John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus finds himself in the temple and entering into something of a dialogue with various crowds and people that were there. Part of the criticism, rather, that was coming towards him is in relation to what he had done on the Sabbath day. He had healed on the Sabbath day, and so often the, the conflict surrounded what he did on the Sabbath. And the criticism, of course, was that you have broken the Sabbath. You're, you're violating the Sabbath. And his response to them was that, well, look, you have no problem with circumcision on the Sabbath day because you see it as a work of God, a work that God calls for. And you see that, therefore, as a work of God, therefore, a work of God is permitted, indeed, encouraged and ought to take place on the Sabbath day, regardless of the fact that it's a Sabbath. This is the work of God. Christ correlates that with, then, His miracle, His mercy of, of recovering men, healing men. He's saying, can you not see that the healing of the man is also a work of God? How come circumcision can be a work of God in your mind and permissible on the Sabbath, but a miracle that recovers a man's health, that restores a man, that for some reason is outside what you would consider a work of God, when that is even more clearly, manifestly, a miracle by the hand of God. God is working, doing this work. The Jewish judgment, therefore, was prejudiced, not objective. And so Jesus says to them in John 7, 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And he is encouraging, therefore, judgment, isn't he? Judge righteous judgment. Stop judging by appearance. Stop judging by your prejudice. You see something, you respond, but you aren't taking time to take into consideration what's happening. You're just responding, and you're kind of this crowd collective mentality of rejecting what I have done without due consideration. Judge righteous judgment. So he encourages judgment. Stop misconstruing your flawed deductions from the law of Moses are leading you to the wrong conclusions. If you judge righteous judgment, you'll understand. So he encourages it. 
He welcomes judgment of himself, judgment of his own acts, only righteous judgment instead of judging according to the appearance. So, judge not and ye shall not be judged. If we are to judge, (laughs) what then does the Lord mean here? In a word, what the Lord deals with here is the sin of censoriousness. Or we might use more familiarly the term being hypercritical. That's the problem. That's the issue. Being hypercritical. This is a problem that is far too prevalent in the church. That's why I'm saying, if you thought the previous verses were difficult, I think when we look at this, and we take time to understand it, we may find it even more difficult. We are people of truth. Perhaps, in some ways, the church, the orthodox, Bible-leaving Christian is almost like the, the last, not exclusively, but they're among the last who value truth, who discern there's right and there's wrong, there's objective truth. When they're Whole groups wholesale giving themselves over to a worldview that has no place in their mind for absolute truth. So holding on to the truth requires us then to make judgments, to discern what is right and what is wrong. But doing that is a matter that we must exercise carefully. We've all been hurt in the church. I don't doubt that. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've been hurt. You've been hurt by people's words, by their actions, by their assumptions, by what they have done, what they have not done. I don't think if you've been a Christian any length of time, you probably have been hurt. If I was to talk to you afterwards and say, have you ever been hurt in the church by God's people? Would there be anyone here who would walk out and say, no, never? (laughs) I think everyone. It doesn't take very long. I look back at my own experience coming in, salvation, rejoicing what the Lord had done, thought, you know, the world was now, had righted itself in the most wonderful way, and it had, in a certain sense, of course, within my own heart. But you meet all these new people, there's such joy, there's such a wonderful experience of, of, of the fellowship and togetherness of the people of God. And it seemed like, it was just, yeah, there there was nothing negative that could be imagined. But a few months passed, and then you get your first taste of being misunderstood or something else happening. And you realize, oh, you know, why did they do that? Why did they say that? And all these sorts of things. We've all been there. We have all been there. Imagine, imagine that God's people, everyone, every Christian, gave others the benefit of the doubt. Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine in their judgments they practiced presumed innocence before passing comment. What a world. What a church. Imagine that Christians would remember that the burden of proof is upon the one bringing the charge. 
rather than upon the one being criticized or judged. But this is not how church is. Christians don't give the benefit of doubt very often. They imagine guilt. They pass comment based on the assumption of guilt. And they require the burden of proof to be upon the one criticized rather than upon the one bringing the charge. And during the conversation, someone says something and you immediately are taken in by, really? They said that? They did that? That happened without any? Just stop a minute, okay. (laughs) Can you prove it? What's the evidence of this? Where are the other witnesses? Or even do better than that. I don't need to know about this. This is actually none of my business. Why are you telling me this? How is it that you seem to get some kick out of passing on this information? Stop. That would be a better response. But at least question. Question. Is there any validity to the claim? Is this real truth? Has there been legitimate wrongdoing? Or we just run away? Do we we submit to the carnal desire of the heart and have the emotions and the feelings run away? Because for some reason, we want to presume the worst about people far too often. We all fall short far too often. That is true. But the censorious person is usually at the opposite end It's not just a blip. It is part of the character, something they do regularly. The censorious man has the inclination to look for and point out faults and defects without sufficient consideration of himself. He has a form of self-righteousness using criticism of others in a way that implies moral superiority. He uses his censorious remarks as a form of self-exaltation, hoping that by extinguishing the light emanating from the character of another, his own character may shine more brightly. It is fundamentally hypocritical and avoids self-examination doesn't want to look at himself. All the attention is upon others. The censorious person puts the worst construction upon other people's motives. The censorious person is ungenerous towards the mistakes of others. He's like the elder brother of Luke 15. The individual locked in their crosshairs only draws out their disapproval. They find no delight. Everyone else is rejoicing and can find reason to rejoice, but they can't. They highlight the fault, the error. The censorious person will judge an entire life by its worst moments. If that was the model, David would not be the standard for kings. The censorious person in apparent obedience to Galatians 6.1, believes himself to be in the spiritual position to restore, but he is devoid of the spirit of meekness essential to the work of restoration. The censorious person is an authoritarian at heart. 
For he uses his judgments not to set people free, but to put people in their place. And though he be guilty of all this, the censorious person is most generous to himself when making his judgments. To himself. He will give the benefit of the doubt, but not to others. This is what Christ is dealing with. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. What I have tried to paint for you this evening is not rare. It's not uncommon. There are people, for whatever reason, they continue in a path that manifests this kind of attitude. They love it. I don't know what's going on psychologically. I don't understand why it is that the Lord doesn't seem to show them, or at least they are so resistant to it, they they never appear to feel the wrongness of what they're doing. So they continue. Their entire ministry is built upon this kind of thing. Discernment ministries. It's wonderful today. It's wonderful today. You can, you can track people down all over the world. You can see their schedules, see where they're going, what they're doing because of they put it on social media or it's available on websites. You can Google them. You can put in a little alert for people's names or events or organizations. And Google will alert you every time they're mentioned so that you have your inbox filled with every occurrence of what they're doing so that you can criticize the errors that they're making. The world we live in has made this kind of thing so much more easy to do. There was a time where we might hear something about someone, but, but the world seemed larger then. Hearing criticism about a man who lives 500 miles away, you would think to yourself, it's 500 miles away. I, I don't know this man. I don't know who he is. I don't know anyone who knows him. So, in some sense, I imagine that that would have helped hem people in and realize, look, I really don't know what's going on here. And it's so far away, it seems like, it, you know, it really has nothing to do with me. But today... Australia seems like it's next door. Information that's available across the world gives us all an opinion upon everyone's life and what they're doing. We imagine that we know not just what's detailed, but the motives undergirding it. This is why the president said this. Or this is why a person said the other. This is why church leaders did. It goes on and on and on. And, and there are whole ministries that are built upon this. And you, you, you wonder, what is the fruit? What is the benefit? What is being accomplished? Are we to be warned of certain people? Absolutely. I'm not against warning, but having a ministry or a mentality that seems so focused constantly on the negative. Seldom, seldom do such people ever give 
credit or encouragement or joyfully express their delight in what someone's doing. And that is a very revealing thing because it's not about discerning people. It's about finding people you can find fault in in order to elevate your own self, make yourself look better. And turning people's attention to someone doing good doesn't really help you in that, does it? It might draw people's attention, well, this, this guy's good, or this, this person's doing a great work, or something. You don't want to do that. You don't want to encourage people along the good path. You just want to get them on the bad path. You want to show them the errors and the faults. And again, sometimes there may be a little fault, but there's no generous, there's no generous spirit. There's no thinking, there could be another side to this, or it might not be exactly as it's presented. So we run to conclusions. Now I've dealt with, I've touched on some of this before. I'm dealing with it again. It's in the text because it's relevant, beloved. It is relevant. It is relevant here. It's relevant in our church. It's relevant in our context. It's relevant being orthodox, reformed, fundamental, whatever label you want to put on it. All of this tends to lead to this kind of thing. It's under the guise of commitment to the truth. And I love the truth. And I don't want to be a wishy-washy preacher. I don't want to be a wishy-washy church or part of a wishy-washy church. Where truth, again, is up for grabs and we start vacillating on every issue. But we are not. We are not to be dominated by a censorious spirit that is hypercritical of everything that doesn't exactly cross our T's and dot our I's. so grieving. There was a need. There was a need a hundred years ago to address the downward drift of the church. And good men saw it, and they dealt with it, and they exposed it, and thank God they did. Our own denomination came out, was established because there was awareness that there was a willingness in certain quarters to compromise on that which we simply cannot compromise on. The cause was necessary. Coming out is required at times. But it seemed like we did a lot better when we were the ones receiving the attacks for coming out. That the criticism really was coming from the other side, from the liberals, from the people who wanted to find fault with us for exposing them in their error by our removal from associating with them. But as time goes on, it's amazing how you can begin to morph into the very thing you opposed. You take on the same characteristics. You behave in the same way. Now, this, this is all over the place. I, 
I lament, I, I, I don't know, I lament this not just within our own context, but you meet people and you read about people who maybe grew up in a, a fundamental Baptist church or whatever it might be. And they come to different convictions and beliefs. And that's okay, that's fine. People will traverse their own journey. But they become, they actually, one of the things they do is that they look back on the, the critical spirit that they grew up in. They grew up in a hypercritical church, and that's one of their, their remarks, their experience. But as they reveal that, <laughs> they step into the very same sin because they become hypercritical. They can find no good in their upbringing. They're seldom thankful for the fact that the God, God's Word was put before them. Faithful Sunday school teachers loved them, taught them the Word of God. Their experiences, though they may be fairly frequent over the period of 20 years, really when all is said and done, one thing might have been happening at most a year. But the 51 other weeks of the year, they were being faithfully taught the Word, pointed to Christ, encouraged to trust in the Son of God. They were surrounded by loving people who loved the Lord with all of their faults. And they were doing their best. But that doesn't get reflected that doesn't get talked about. Again, they, they hone in. They hone in. They become hypercritical of the few experiences that they had that damaged them, affected them, impacted them. And, and they fall into the same spirit that they accuse that church that they grew up in of. It's like we have this bent to this. That's what I'm saying. When Jesus says, judge not that ye be not judged, condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned... He's dealing with something. We might not have active enemies right now in your life, but I am quite sure that you know something of what we're dealing with tonight. And you've been on the critical end and you've been on the receiving end of the criticism. You know exactly what this is like. And it's not Christian. Christ is calling for generosity. Go back to verse 31. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. And of course the context of this is dealing with enemies, dealing with people who have no love for you, that you don't have any connection with except that they're made in the image of God. But what we find is in the church, in the church, not just connected by the fact that we are made in the image of God, we're all men, we're all women, but we're connected through Christ. We're all in union with the Son of God and, and this is where it becomes even more strongly manifested and must be more heartbreaking to Christ. What are my people doing? Why is it that they continually judge each other, condemn each other? Why? What is the motivation? Why does this go on so frequently, so liberally? What is the end? What is the purpose? What is the goal? How is this advancing the kingdom? As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. It has often been said, I don't know who said it, before you speak, ask yourself 
If what you're going to say is true, is kind, is necessary, is helpful, if the answer is no, maybe what you're about to say should be left unsaid. You know, the hardest part about preaching this message tonight was that as I was preparing, my hypocritical heart was thinking of people to whom it applies, not myself. I was guilty of the very thing I was in preparation judging. Not verbally, wasn't sharing it, wasn't talking to you about it, but in my own heart I was I was revealing the same spirit. Judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. The generosity continues. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. There is perhaps no more vital interpersonal behavior than a willingness to forgive. And how we deal with men, is there a more vital aspect of our behavior than our willingness to forgive? In a fallen world, you will upset and hurt people. You will. And you will be upset by others. You will be hurt by others. And I've said this before. I'm going to repeat it because it needs to be repeated. The church is not a place where people stop offending one another as the history of your own experience will prove. But what God's people have are the tools to deal with the offences. We know what to do. Someone offends you, you know how to deal with it. Christ has given you the tools. Here's what to do. So we are in a better place than anyone else in the world. We are going to be hurt, but we know what to do. Our problem is we don't do it. We don't. We neglect what God has said, what Christ has taught. So we are called here to forgive. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. It immediately arises perhaps the question, does this mean that I am in part saved by works? That I have to do the work of forgiveness before I will be forgiven? Of course, we don't believe we're saved by works. But like verse 35, which is not saying that by your obedience to everything that precedes verse 35, you will then show that you're the children of the highest. What it's saying is, if you do all this, it is proving that you are the children of the highest. And similarly, if you forgive, 
You're proving that you are forgiven. Now, there's a practical application to it because it's not just dealing with our relationship with God, it's dealing with our relationship with men. So if you forgive men, you'll be forgiven. Usually. (laughs) I say usually because I have had, in my own experience, let me illustrate, there was an issue between myself and another person. I reacted to something that they did. I reacted in a way I should not have reacted. So I went to them. And with tears, I confessed my sin and asked them to forgive me. And in turn, they confessed their sin. And I'm not sure if they asked me to forgive them, but it was a feeling like there had been reconciliation. Anyway, we embraced. I walked away rejoicing. A cloud was lifted. Obedience to the Lord's command. Going, being reconciled. But I very soon found out afterwards that their spirit had not changed. Evidence that they still harbored something. And to this day I wonder, I'm being honest with you now, to this day I wonder, what should I do? Should I go again? Should I go again to them? I haven't. Time has passed. But it comes, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about these events, I'm wondering. I reacted to something they said, they did. I know my reaction was wrong. I went then to be reconciled. I thought the reconciliation took place. I found out later that clearly that wasn't the case. And you're wondering, have I a responsibility to go back? So I don't have this all figured out. I don't have it perfect. But we must prioritize forgiveness. God knows my heart. I harbor no ill will toward that person. Even though I was flabbergasted that believing that the matter had been resolved, it wasn't. I couldn't quite comprehend. That was a little hard to digest. But, you know my heart, Lord, I have a disposition of forgiveness. I will not harbor an issue with this person. You know my heart. And here's the thing. If you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to forgive, to walk your life, traverse your life, travel the Christian pilgrimage without a willingness and a disposition of forgiveness and seeking to be forgiven and so on, if you're not, it's like walking with one foot in hell. Now, can I be many more clear? Because Christ's language, not just here, but even in the prayer that we are taught to pray, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is a clear responsibility that if you are forgiven, you must seek to walk in forgiveness with others. A disposition of forgiveness, a welcoming forgiveness, embracing it, and never harboring resentment and a complete refusal to be forgiven or offer forgiveness. To do so without the danger of walking into works righteousness It is clear to me from the language of the Lord to harbor ill is to walk with one foot in hell itself. So, 
Christ is saying, forgive and ye shall be forgiven. That's of course been your experience perhaps, as it has been mine. As I go to people and I seek their forgiveness, on the few occasions where I've done so and needed to, well, probably more than a few, just some stick out in your mind more than others. When you do so, the tends that the forgiveness comes back and there's reconciliation. This is the will of God. That's what he desires. Spouses take it to heart. Go, forgive, be forgiven. That's what you do. Marriages cannot last without this. Churches cannot last without this. Nothing lasts without this. It will all fall apart eventually if there is a refusal to take to heart the seriousness of the language of our Lord Jesus given to us. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. And he goes then to the next positive. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. What's, what's he talking about? It's a, it's a marketplace illustration here. You go to get corn and as you go there and, and you go to buy corn, of course... The Lord always wanting, was wanting people to be clear with weights and measures, the honesty that would come out in their business dealings. And, and so some in their approach, the generous in the marketplace, would ensure that people were getting exactly what they got and more by when they poured in the corn, they would shake it, press it, and as we would talk about settling, when something settling, you see packages sometimes, contents may settle. Well, that, they were forcing the settlement Trying to force the settlement so that the person got at the bare minimum what they were paying for, and if not, even more than that. They were generous. They were giving generously. The person's coming, wanting to buy so much corn or meal or whatever it is, and they were, this is how they would do conduct their business dealings. And so this is a language, this is an imagery that they would be common, that would be common in that time. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. This isn't talking about material things. This is in context of how we deal with men in terms of our spirit, how we relate to them. And this is calling us then to generosity. That's why I'm saying this is about being generous. The Christian, the Christ follower is generous. So they don't have this censorious mindset as they view people with their faults. They are generous. This is what the Lord calls us to manifest, judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. And so you look at this and you think, well, does it really matter? Is it a big deal? Maybe the Lord's just suggesting this. No, this is the heart of the gospel. We must be viewing this text in light of what we have received. What have we received? We have received this and so much more. Well, here you are tonight, saved, washed in the blood of Christ. Just think of it for a minute. The Lord of glory. You can't even begin to comprehend the magnitude of His glory. Angels veil themselves from this person who condescended into this earth, took upon Him our flesh, lived and was abused, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and went to the cross bearing your shame, bearing your sin, Bearing all the ills that you're guilty of, he took them, he made them his own, bore them on his own shoulders, suffered, bled, and died, hated, despised, rejected of all, 
laid down his life for us. And the abundance of that is, is forgiveness, full forgiveness. Not 99% being right with God, 100% justified, right before God, not by any effort, by yourself, all of him. 2,000 years ago, a man, God became flesh, a man traversed as the God-man. And by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, you're not going to hell. And that's the only reason. You would be in hell. You're going to hell if it was not for the Son of God who abundantly gave every ounce of his being in order to do one thing, rescue your never-dying soul. And so he simply says, if you're a follower of me, could you, could you do this? Could you judge not? Condemn not? Forgive and give? Could you do that? We sit here holding our resentments, history of wrongdoings and never wanting to forgive, never wanting to give it up. Imagine for a second God did that. Imagine for a nanosecond that God decided, you know what, that's a bridge too far. No more. Lost. Forever. Are you getting it, beloved? I don't like the pastoral issues when people come and underlying their issues is a a fundamental hard-hearted unwillingness to simply do what Jesus says here. Because you're, you're wondering at times, am I pastoring this? Am I trying to pastor this person, guide this person to help them understand what Jesus said? Or does this person need to be saved? Do they need to be saved? How come the gospel hasn't clicked? How come the resentment is held on to? What's, what's happening here? And I know you're, you're my, you don't know what I've gone through. Listen, neither do you know anything about what I have gone through. You haven't a clue. And so it is for us all. Christ walks with every individual believer here. And he will walk them through these issues. And he will shower them with his goodness. And they will experience the wonder of the reciprocity that's promised in the text. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Judge not, you shall not be judged. You want to know why perhaps you are on the receiving end of judgment? Condemnation? Lack of forgiveness? Maybe it's a lack of what you offer. Your unwillingness to take these things to heart. So look at the end of verse 38. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Reciprocity. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Turn for a second to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Here's the lost sinner. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. 
Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? If you marked iniquities, the way men mark iniquities, he did that, she did the other, he said, marking iniquities, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But, but, there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Down verse 7, let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We read that and we say, yes, that's my entitlement. Is it? It's Christ's entitlement. He has purchased this. He has given this to you. It is on his merit you receive this. And we stand so stiff-necked and proud, continuing in our judging and condemning and lack of forgiving. We won't extend anything to those that have harmed us. Imagine. Imagine those, those who know the Lord washed in the blood of Christ, lacking generosity. What is this? The Spirit is a generous one. Just keep giving. You're receiving, you're receiving hardship, criticism, condemnation. Give. You press it down, shaking together, running over. You just keep giving. Oh, there's a little more space there. I'll add in more. I can keep giving more. I'm going to keep going until it's flowing over. I'm going to... That is the spirit. Generosity. Not harboring ills. Generosity. I think I'll leave it there. Let's bow together in prayer. If we can't get this right, Can we do anything right? What are we offering to the world if we can't get the basics? What are we preaching? What are we saying? Trying to get people to understand the gospel and yet we don't don't reveal it ourselves? Christian, I encourage you to fight by the grace of God, you fight every, every thought that rises up of condemn, condemning, judging. You fight it. Even if you come under criticism of being too forgiving. Criticism of being too merciful. Take that criticism before you're guilty of the opposite.
God, help us. We plead with thee. We beg of thee to give a greater sense of thy presence. Because as we live in the experience of the presence of God, it helps us, it helps us be to be wary. It helps us to be more cautious. I pray, Lord, that when the temptation is there, we will flee like Joseph of old. Help us run. Run away. Run away from the temptation to judge and condemn and hold back forgiveness. God, make us generous. Make us as generous as Thou art. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in Thee. Give grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.